I'd like for you to turn to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, There was a certain, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me my legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. That word literally means give me a black eye. True story, hit me under the eye. This woman is beating me up with her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? Will not God bring justice to his elect is the question. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, here's the larger question, will he find, and if you got a little pencil, put a definite article in front of the word faith because it's there in the Greek, Will he find the faith on the earth? I, uh, I suppose we say the uh, Pledge of Allegiance so often that it becomes kind of rote for us and we more or less say it without really thinking about what it says. Think about the last part of the Pledge. One nation under God this nation really is a nation established by people who were seeking not gold but God. And there was a time in which um, in every session of Congress and in political places men sought answers and counsel from the Bible. And there was a time when prayer was made in every classroom and before every meeting and the name of God was used to seek guidance and help and counsel. One nation under God, indivisible, our strength is in our unity. With liberty, that is our watchword, and what we enjoy tonight is our freedom. Our freedoms are what we enjoy. With justice for all. Now really, is that part really true? With, with liberty and justice for all. I think probably it would be more accurate to say that there is injustice for all. And if you took that word justice and uh, justice for all and contrast that ideal, uh, idealism of that statement, that pledge, with the harsh reality of what is true, then you could probably say with, with me there is injustice for all. Um, the word just or justice means that which is right. It means to conform to a standard of rightness. 
Um, justice means, in essence, that you know, if there is justice, a person who does right will be rewarded, and somebody who does wrong will be punished. That's the way it was in my house, except when it related to my sister. You know, she got by with everything, but when I did bad, I got punished. When I did good, I got rewarded. I mean, that was the, what went on in our house. And, and uh, the idea of justice is, is that if you do good, if you do right, you get rewarded. If you do wrong, you get punished. I decided I would get a concordance this week and just look up in the Bible how many times the word justice is used. It's astounding how much of the Bible is based upon the principle of justice for all. I mean, the nation that Moses established as he began to move out and, and, and bring his people out to establish a nation and give the commandments of that nation was established on justice. You know, before they, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, before they went into the land, Moses said this, You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And in the book of 1 Kings, when they established the monarchy, this is what it says, when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. And the book of Proverbs puts it like this, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. And the prophets who cut their teeth on the word of God talked about justice. Isaiah puts it like this, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense. And Amos says it, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos said that, and so did Martin Luther King, by the way. Justice. And I've decided that I would just kind of see if I could put into categories the injustice that you and I um, are familiar with. I thought about immoral and ethical injustice. The immoral person walks away with little punishment, leaving the moral person in the lurch, the immoral person takes the money and runs, and the moral and ethical person is left holding the bag, prompting Leo DeRocher to say, nice guys finish last. Now what is fair about a person who is married and his spouse has an affair, takes him to court or her to court, gets the children and the house, and alimony. I mean, what's justice there? The immoral, ethical injustice. Second, there is legal injustice. How many times have you heard in recent months, the system doesn't work anymore? 
so that two boys can kill their parents in cold blood, alleged, kill their parents in cold blood, and never be punished for that. Not because they are guiltless, but because they are found not guilty, they are able to pay some expensive attorney to find some loophole. And on the other hand, I'm hearing that there are people behind bars who are suffering injustice by being in prison when they don't deserve it. I mean, I have a great respect for Chuck Colson. I've read everything he's written except the last book. And I got the name of that. I'm going to buy it this week. He says that most people who are in prison do not deserve to be in prison. There is personal injustice. There is not a single person here tonight who has not been ripped off by somebody. And everybody here in this room, if you just thought about it for a moment, could name people that have named somebody who has done something to you you didn't deserve. So here is a person who is married, he loves his spouse, she loves marriage, but the partner doesn't, so he walks off. And sometimes the godly suffer and the ungodly do not. And then there is religious injustice. There is the injustice of being ripped off or taken in by somebody in the realm of religion, the horrors of Jonestown, and the horrors of Waco are evidence that sometimes people use religion to, to uh, manipulate folks for their own purposes and desires. There are all kinds of injustices. Have you not asked, where is God, and where is justice, and where is fairness, and why isn't there justice in the land if God is a just God? Or maybe a larger question, is how should I respond to the injustice that is, that is a reality in my life? Well, there's a ray of hope, and that ray of hope is found in this parable in the 18th chapter of the book of Luke. Now, let me say something about this parable that it is not. It is not a parable that teaches persistence in prayer. And whenever you have a person get up and teach this parable... Concerning importunity, that is, persistence in prayer, they're taking it completely out of its context. It is not a parable teaching persistence in prayer. It is a parable. Now, I need to remind us of what a parable is. A parable is some fictitious story that contains a moral attribute or spiritual religious principle. The word parable is a combination of Greek words, parabolos, para meaning alongside, bolos meaning to cast down. And what a parable is literally is the casting alongside something. And the idea is a contrast. So a parable is an artificially devised story which by contrast, which by contrast transfers truth from the realm of the known into the realm of the unknown. This parable that Jesus told is a simple story, artificially devised story, from a fictitious idea, and he draws truth from life that is known by everybody, 
And he uses that truth to teach something that is not known. So he places the familiar alongside the unfamiliar to teach us truth. Now what's the truth he's teaching? Well, this parable has a stated lesson. Now, not every parable has a stated lesson. I mean, there is a lesson, but you have to kind of dig it out. This parable has a stated lesson. This is the stated lesson. To show the right way at all times to pray and not lose heart. To show at all times to pray and not lose heart. Now, why would he say that? Why would he... Why would he give a parable to teach us to pray at all times and not become discouraged or depressed? Well, because when injustice comes, we have a powerful tendency to lose heart. I think if I were behind bars, and I didn't deserve to be behind bars, I think I probably would anyway, but if I didn't deserve to be behind bars, I wouldn't take, it wouldn't take me long to lose heart. I'm amazed when I read the stories of these godly people that used to exist behind the Iron Curtain, put in prison for years and never able to see their children even, and never lost heart. What is the key to that? There is a tendency when injustice comes to lose heart. If disease invaded my house, if my children, I had a child that was kidnapped and murdered and raped by a person who should be in prison himself, I have a feeling I'd struggle with losing heart. Now Jesus is saying you have two alternatives. You can lose heart or you can prevail in prayer. And if you lose heart, it's because you're not continuing in prayer. And if you continue in prayer, you will not lose heart. It doesn't matter how much injustice invades your life. If you have an attitude that hangs in there in prevailing prayer, you will not lose heart. For the purpose of prevailing prayer, what's this? The purpose of prevailing prayer is that you will not become discouraged, depressed, and lose heart. For prevailing prayer is the defense against despair. I need to say that again. Prevailing prayer is the defense against despair. And when you go to somebody and you're discouraged and depressed and that person tells you, well, you just need to be, you know, begin to pray. You need to pray. You might think they're just kind of putting out some platitudes and cliches. They're really not, really. For the defense against despair is to pray at all times is prevailing prayer. Now, in your mind, I want you to imagine a piece of paper with two columns. On the left-hand side of the page is a woman... On the right is man. On the left side is a helpless woman. She's called a widow because Jesus in this parable wants us to see that this person is absolutely helpless. 
She is a widow, a woman, which means that she has no resources. She's helpless. On the other side, on the right-hand column, you have a powerful man who is a judge. On the left-hand column, you have a woman who has a great heart and courage. On the right-hand side, you have a man who lacks integrity. He has power. She has none. He can change things at his word. She has no way to change anything. She has only the ability to come over and over again to this judge. On the right is a, is, a, is a man who has to put up with this woman. On the left is this woman who is at his mercy but comes back again and again and finally he gives in to her request. Now, this story is drawn up from an extreme contrast to show us the the difference here. You've got a woman who is helpless, a good person with a good heart, and you've got this guy over here who, who doesn't care about God and doesn't respect man. He is neither um, religious nor humanitarian. And she's coming to him because she has an opponent and she needs legal protection. I have an idea about what this opponent was like, but in my imagination, you know, he's, I guess he's kind of like a stalker. Um, you ever had somebody or know somebody who was stalked by someone? Uh, my daughter who is down in, uh, uh, in the Holy Land on Baylor campus where God is in the holy place down there. And she calls home all the time telling us about, you know, encouraging us and helping us feel real good about all these stalkers that walk around following women on the campus down there. Tell about her na- the next door neighbor had been stalked by this guy. And um, he had uh, threatened to kill her. He, she was out on the campus the other night and he was stalking her and... Uh, and she uh, somehow escaped from him. Well, that's another story. I have a feeling that this, this is kind of what's going on. It's kind of like a person who, who's stalking someone. And she comes to this judge, and this is her request. Give me my rights. And she wears him out. Till finally, he gives in. Not because he cares about her, he doesn't. He cares not about man It's not because he's touched by God. He cares nothing about God. He's thinking about himself. This woman's going to give me a black eye. I better give her what she wants. Now, I want you to forget about the unjust judge. Forget him. And I want you to think about the righteous judge, the Almighty. And it's not, this parable is not to say that if you go to God long enough, you'll wear Him out and He'll give you what you ask for. It's not what that's saying at all. What He's saying is this, that if this unjust, unrighteous, non-caring judge will bring about justice, how much more will the righteous judge, the Almighty, the righteous Father, bring about justice? And what he's saying in this parable is, is that one day 
there's going to be a bottom line and a conclusion, and you can mark it down. God, the righteous judge, almighty Father, is going to bring about justice. In the meantime, what are we to do? Continue to pray. Now, G. Campbell Morgan, in my opinion, has the greatest book on prayer you will ever read. He says in this, pra- this book, prayer is more than uttering words. Prayer, in the last analysis, is the urge of the life toward God and spiritual things. It's the setting of the mind on things above so that every detail of every day can be measured by that urge. What he's saying is this, is that you live your life like this. Your life is stretched out toward God. And the urge of your life every day in every detail is stretched out toward Him. Now this woman was saying, in essence, help me. And some of you have said that. Lord, help me. Um, and, and, we, and you say, well, I thought He would. I thought He would intervene. And, and, and verse 8 says that He will. And yet, I continue to get ripped off. My, house is in, my home is invaded by disease. What about the unborn child who is aborted, has no say-so whatsoever? How am I to respond to that? Well, the answer is, I do as the victim of this parable does. I cry to him. I bother him. The urge of my spirit is always this. Make it right. Lift me above this. Get me through this. And that's my bent of life. Now, The problem I have with it is, is that in verse 8 he says that he will bring justice speedily. Um, Well, you know, all that speed speed is uh, relative, I guess. I mean, how long is, (laughs) what what, what is speedily? Doesn't seem like it's speedily to me. Let me me show what he's talking about in the context. Look back at chapter 17, verse 22. He said to the disciples, The days shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you'll not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, look here, do not go away, do not run after them. And what he's talking about to these disciples it has to do with the parousia, the parousia, the eschatology, the end time. Now watch this carefully. In the context of this teaching in chapter 17 he gave them this parable that they're to pray and not lose heart and what he's saying is this one of these days Jesus is coming back and all that all that has happened in this life will be um, judged will be um, will be brought to the to the to the bar and the and the bottom line will be drawn and be all added up. It all has to do with the end of the age. And when Jesus comes back in a twinkling of an eye, He's going to bring about justice and God's going to get glory. Now when's that going to happen? Well, it could happen tonight. The return of the Lord is imminent 
And so how we're to live is this, with our life bent toward the Lord and our urge of, to, to, of life is toward God. We live in the constant anticipation that Jesus is coming back and justice will be accomplished and He'll get the glory. Now, back to chapter 8, 18. I'm going to show you a, a larger question. Really, the question tonight is really for us is not... Will not God bring about justice? Will not the Lord bring about justice? But the question that I want to ask us tonight is this. When the Son of Man comes, will He find the faith on earth? That's the ultimate question. Now, I, I, I did a little work on that idea of the faith there and tried to find out, figure out in my mind uh, what, what He's talking about there. There are some who suggest, and, and as I do a little research on this, some suggest that he's talking about the kind of faith this woman had, okay, this widow. But there are others who have this opinion, I think probably is the best opinion, is that this faith that he's talking about here is faith in the ultimate triumph of God that will be accomplished when Jesus returns. So when Jesus returns, will He find you with that kind of faith? That's the, that's the heavy question. How much do you believe? And how much you believe is determined by how much you pray. That's what He's saying. And a person who lives in his life bent toward God in prevailing prayer is a person who believes in the ultimate triumph of Jesus. That's why he prays. And when Jesus returns, will he find you believing in him and his ultimate triumph, or will he find you filled with despair and depression and discouragement? Let me tell you something. Depression and despair is not a part of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. A few years ago, a man by the name of Elie Zeisel wrote, won the Nobel Prize. That was in 1986. He, wrote, he, he won the Nobel Prize for literature. He wrote a book simply entitled Night, N-I-G-H-T. Elie Zeisel was a Jew who grew up in Hungary. And he was just a child when the Nazis uh, came and took his family, he and his family, away to the death camp. The foreword in this book, and I've not read the book, but I've read several uh, reviews of the book. The foreword in this book was written by a man by the name of Myrak, a uh, scholar from France. This is what he said. One could not imagine what went through the mind of Elie Zeisel as he watched the black smoke circling into the sky from the oven where his mother and little sister were going to be thrown with thousands of others like them. Zeisel said, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, that which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed, seven times sealed. Never, for, never shall I forget that smoke. 
Never shall I forget the bodies of little children turned into the wreaths of smoke beneath the silent skies. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget, even if I'm condemned to live as long as God Himself. And Myrick said, imagine living your life like that, a living death. And he recalled the time that Zeisel looked at himself in a mirror. He hadn't seen his reflection in a mirror for years and said, never shall I forget that face. And he recalled the day he saw a child hanged. He said the face of that child was as sad as the face of angels. And I heard a voice behind me saying, Where is God? Where can He be now? And Zeisel said, A voice within me replied, He's there hanging on that gallows, dead. He was a man scarred for life. Now, what would you say to Eli Zeisel if you could speak to him today? Would you say, I'll tell you where God is. He's at the same place he was when he watched his own son hanging and dying. And every Lord's Day, we gather to applaud the fact that he rose from the dead and that he's coming back to bring justice for all. Is that what you'd say? I have no platitudes for you, said Myrick, but I can tell you that through prevailing prayer, God will get you through this. The question is, when Jesus comes back, what kind of faith will He find among you? Let's pray. Our Father... We know that vengeance is yours, saith the Lord. And that although we have been treated unfairly, life has so many unfair experiences. We believe you, we trust you. And we know that you're a God who cares both about us and others. And in the ultimate end, it's going to come out like you planned. So help us to keep on trusting, keep on believing, keep on praying. For I pray in Jesus' name, for his sake, in a spirit of prayer, would you stand? As God leads you to come tonight, I invite you to come in this invitation.